Hello, listeners. Welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut. Today is Saturday, February 5th, 2021. And joining me via Zoom from Paris is Simon Cooper, author of a new book on recently deceased super spy and prison escapee, George Blake. But first, I'd like to ask all listeners to please do me a favor. Wherever you listen to this podcast, please leave a review, whether that's on iTunes or whatever platform you use. I looked at our reviews the other day and realized that we have some positive feedback there, but it was looking a little bit old. And that's mostly my fault because I haven't been encouraging you all each episode to leave a review. So ladies and gentlemen, please leave us a review and share the podcast with colleagues, friends, even enemies and spies. Secondly, check out NK News, your specialist source for trusted information on North Korea. Get behind the headlines at nknews.org. Consider buying a subscription for a year. It's more affordable than you think, and it helps us to fund the excellent journalism that my colleagues put out every day. If you're already a subscriber, consider an upgrade to NK Pro. Now, to introduce my guest today, Simon Cooper is a journalist and author. He writes for the Financial Times and also books primarily about football, but not this one that we'll be talking about today. He writes in both Dutch and English, which is more than I can claim for myself. He's the author of the new book, The Happy Traitor, Spies, Lies and Exile in Russia, The Extraordinary Story of George Blake. This book has just come out this week from Profile Books, and you can find it uh, online as both an e-book and a paper book on the internet. Simon, welcome on the show, and thanks for your time today. Thanks for asking me. Now, George Blake lived to be 98 years old, but arguably most of the interesting things, at least to us, happened in the first 44 years of his life. How would you sum up the story of George Blake in a sentence or two? George Blake was a British Dutchman who became a KGB agent while captive in North Korea. He betrayed hundreds of agents in the Berlin spy tunnel to the KGB, was jailed by the British, escaped from jail in 1966 spectacularly, and spent the rest of his life in Moscow. Okay, that is a very good elevator pitch. Uh, Now, you already alluded to his uh, interesting identity. He was born in Holland uh, to a father who had won British citizenship by fighting for the British Army in World War I. Uh, One thing I'm still unsure of is this. Was George's father a Jew from Constantinople or a Jew from Egypt or a Jew from Spain? I've read varying accounts. Uh, How does that fit together? It is a bit mysterious. My belief is he's a Jew from Constantinople whose sister moved to Cairo and they were a very international family. Mm. Uh, Albert Behar, as he was called, uh, fought in the French Foreign Legion, then the British Army in World War I and uh, was wounded in a gas attack and gained British citizenship. So he was British, although he seems to have spent almost none of his life in Britain. Fascinating. And that's also true for his son, George Blake, isn't it? British, but didn't spend a lot of time in Britain. Yeah, so George's mother uh, was Katharina Bedevel in Rotterdam, and George was born in Rotterdam in 1922 and seems to have first visited the UK very briefly, getting off the boat on the way to Cairo as a teenager. Mm. And so, yes, he grew up uh, feeling British in part, but very distant from the country. Now, how was it that, uh, so you mentioned that his father, Albert Behar, had fought first in the French Foreign Legion, then eventually for the British Army uh, in World War One, and receiving British citizenship partly, what, was that sort of as compensation for being wounded in a gas attack? Or was it pretty much everybody who fought for the British Army then could have claimed British citizenship? I'm not sure, but he was something of a war hero. He, he had had a good war and was obviously quite a respected man because at the end of the war, he's sent to Rotterdam 
by the British to help repatriate British prisoners of war returning from Germany to Britain. So he's quite a responsible guy. And it's while there that he meets Blake's mother. Ah, so he actually ends up in Holland quite by accident, not really meaning to, but just ending up there. Absolutely, in the chaos at the end of World War One, And he meets this woman, decides to settle there mm. and sets up what becomes the British sports house, little shop. He has a couple of small businesses which fail in the Depression. Mm-hmm. And then in 1935, Albert dies, uh, partly from the after effects of his war wounds. Right. And he, he never really uh, made it big in the business world. I understand he made gloves uh, for the Rotterdam dock workers. But his sister, the one that you mentioned, uh, moved to Constantinople. Did she marry into money? The sister moves to Cairo and she marries a um, an Egyptian jurist banker named Daniel Curiel. And it's a francophone household. They have this fantastic mansion in the center of Cairo in Zamalek. The mansion actually today is the Algerian embassy in Cairo. And so when Albert dies, she writes a letter to the widow, to Blake's mother, and Mm -hmm. says, why doesn't George come and live in Cairo with us Mm. for a few years? And we can alleviate your financial burden. So she was aware of the the financial struggles that the Blake family was going through. I think that Albert, as he was dying, said to his soon-to-be widow, Mm -hmm. when I die, write to my sister in Cairo. She'll Ah. sort you out. And the sister also comes with a piece of surprising news which is that always had been Jewish, something he had always kept secret. He'd presented himself as a Briton and oh. as a Lutheran. So uh, had he had he changed his name from Bihar to Blake? No, the family was still called Bihar, and it's only, uh, we'll come to that in World War II, when they mm. all end up in Britain, that they decide, the mother, sisters, and George, to take on a British name, Blake. Okay. Now, was George born a British citizen, or did he acquire that later? He was born a British citizen through his father. Through his father, okay. Now, when you interviewed George Blake in uh, Russia in in 2012, uh, George was most comfortable speaking in Dutch, not English. Why do you think that is? Well, he was very keen to speak Dutch because Dutch was his mother tongue. He'd lived in Holland most of the time until he was 20 and then had never returned. So he he felt very Dutch. He was very much a Dutch royalist. He was very uh, emotionally attached, nostalgic to the country, but like many Dutch people who have ambitions, he wanted to make it in the great wide world. And so he never really attempted to live in Holland again for the rest of his life after age 20. So when I was there, Hmm. he was excited at the chance to speak Dutch and to connect through me because I was going to write a Dutch newspaper article, which I did, Hmm. with his kind of homeland. Okay, so you, you say he was a royalist? Yeah, I mean, he grew up at a time, and the Netherlands is still, uh, as you'll know, a very royalist country. Mm. He grew up at a time when the royal family is very much worshipped, uh, was also seen as the leader of Calvinism. And he was he was a devout, maybe even fundamentalist Calvinist who mm. acquired the belief that uh, everything in life is preordained by God. We humans are just instruments of God's will. So he grew up with this Calvinism and royalism, which was accentuated in World War II when Queen Wilhelmina goes to London, broadcasts over the radio back to the Netherlands, and becomes a kind of symbol of the nation, uh, which is being occupied by the Germans. It's interesting that he was able to hold on to the royalism even after his conversion to communism. Yeah, and at the end of his life, uh, he received uh, Dutch TV in Moscow through a friend who'd organized that, and he Hmm. watched the funerals of uh, Queen Juliana, Wilhelmina's daughter, of Prince Bernard. So he was very, he remained a, um, as they say in Holland, orange feeling until the end of his life. Do you see George as a, a Dutchman who worked for the Russians and betrayed England, or as an Englishman who was born in Holland and had a Dutch mother, or or how? How do you sort of see his identity? George was definitely more Dutch than British. 
he was actually very fond of Britain. He was an Anglophile, but he was a distant admirer of Britain. But I think that from the age of 13, when he goes to Cairo and he does mm. three years of school there, he becomes a cosmopolitan. He realizes he can adapt to any country. He learns languages very easily. And so he goes, I would say, from Dutchman with a tinge of British to full-blown cosmopolitan. Mm. Now, um, I have to unfortunately skip over the, the World War II years in which he was involved in the Dutch resistance and then smuggled himself to England, where he eventually joined the Secret Intelligence Service. I have to fast forward to where George Blake came to Korea in late 1948. So the Republic of Korea is a brand new country, just founded on August the 15th of that year, uh, and about a, a year and a half, or well, a good year and a half before the start of the Korean War. Uh, in what capacity did he come to Korea, and what was his role at the British Embassy here? Well, he was an MI6 officer, Secret Intelligence Services morphing into MI6. And he is the first SIS MI6 person to be sent to Korea. Britain had never had a station there, an intelligence station. And the British say to him when they send him out, look, George, there will be a war. And when that war breaks out, we want you to stay in Korea and observe the North Korean invasion, which will come. And George didn't I call him George uh, because his name kept changing. Let's say Blake. Blake didn't want to go to Korea. He would have much preferred Afghanistan. He was mm. very attracted to the Islamic world. He didn't speak Korean. He spoke good Russian by this point. But he, uh, so he's sent there on a kind of false mission, which is partly to observe the coming North Korean invasion because Britain, he is told, will stay neutral and therefore he'll be able to be an observer. And partly to build a spy network in Vladivostok, which, as you know, is only 450 kilometers from Seoul, mm. but was completely inaccessible. I mean, there were no trade links between South Korea and uh, the USSR. There was no way he could get to Vladivostok. So his attempts to build an agent network there uh, completely failed. Was he also given the task of creating an agent network in uh, newly communist China? No, I think the British had other people in China. The Chinese mm. revolution is happening at that point, and British diplomats and spies are remaining in place to observe that. So the, China was a big priority as the, the Cold War is, is starting, but they had other people. Blake did, was supposed to try and encourage some agents in North Korea. He failed in that as well, but mm. his main task was Vladivostok. So how did he transform his mission when he saw that it wasn't possible to operate a spy network within the Russian Far East? Well, he becomes very disaffected because the South Korean government, which is being propped up by the Americans, he decides is uh, extremely corrupt. It's a lot of uh, Koreans who've lived in America during World War II or before, including Syngman Rhee, the dictator, the Minister of Education, Blake, will always remember, has a photograph of Hitler on his desk, and Blake finds it disgusting. The food aid is stolen by senior government figures and business people. There are homeless people freezing on the streets. And so in South Korea, he starts very much to feel that he's fighting on the wrong side of the Cold War. His sympathies are with the communists, uh, and anyone who opposes the Syngman Rhee regime is labeled a communist by that regime. And he identifies the kind of partisans and the resistance movements, as it were, with the Dutch resistance of World War II in which he'd fought. Mm. So he turns against the government that uh, Britain sympathizes with. Yeah, and that you've um, already touched on, uh, I guess, one of the central mysteries or questions about Blake's life, and that is at what point 
did he become a communist? Do you? It's my sort of take, uh, and I, of course, I haven't read your uh, manuscript yet, but it, I sort of take ja- George's memoir at first va- uh, face value, where he says that it was a long journey towards communism, and and these were you know various steps along the way. So he was definitely on that way, uh, but he wasn't there yet when he was in Seoul. Would you agree with that? By the time he gets to Seoul, I mean, in my book, I largely agree with Blake's account. I think it's quite an honest account in his autobiography. By the time he gets to Seoul, his faith in, let's say, capitalism is really wavering. And he's read this SIS text called mm. The Theory and Practice of Communism by an SIS agent called Carew Hunt, which is meant to brief British intelligence officers about communism so they know what they're fighting. Right. And it's not a particularly sympathetic portrayal of communism, but Blake reads the book and decides, ah, well, communism actually is very appealing. And it sounds a lot like the Calvinism I grew up with, uh, except the paradise is going to be here on earth, but it's a paradise of equality, of no material excess. And so he starts to warm to communism and then in Korea even more so. So this is the moment when he's becoming very ripe for turning. Okay. Now tell us a little bit about George's capture by North Korean soldiers a week after the outbreak of the Korean War uh, and uh, and his first period in the prison of war camps? Well, when the uh, North invades, there's a piece of very bad news that's a big shock to him, which is that Britain enters the war Mm. uh, under American pressure. Britain goes in on the US side. And this is contrary to what he'd been told, that Britain would stay neutral. And he realizes at this point, Britain is no longer a superpower. We're just a kind of adjunct to the US in international affairs. And that's a bit of a disillusionment if you're, you know, if you're a spy and you turn yeah. out you're working for a second rank power. And he's in big danger because now uh, he's an enemy alien. And so the North Koreans uh, drive up to the embassy and they take the three di- British diplomats and other Britons who are sheltering there. And they are taken prisoner. They think at one point they'll be executed, but they're not. They're taken north, and then as the front moves, at one point, they are taken on what amounts to a death march. Mm. Hundreds of American prisoners of war and with a bunch of elderly uh, missionaries and other uh, clergy people who are in Korea and uh, diplomats, journalists, and hundreds die. And it's it's a really life-changing experience. Blake believes it's very likely he will die in Korea. Meanwhile, he sees American uh, super fortresses, bomber planes, destroying Korean villages. I mean, you know the enormous casualty count of the Korean War. He sees the Americans doing this. He thinks, what right do we as Western powers have to be here to be trying to influence the destiny of these people? They should choose it for themselves. And so on this death march where he behaves heroically and gives his tunic to a nun, even though that you know he himself is freezing, Mm. gives his food to others who are even hungrier than he is, on this death march, he he kind of looks death in the eye and he thinks, I might die here. If I die here, have I devoted my life to the right cause? Have I followed the right ideals? And he, he decides, no, I haven't. And then at the end of all this period of turmoil in February 1951, things quieten down and they're put in a deserted farmhouse in North Korea near Manpo. Hang on, just and, before you get to that. Yeah. Um, so th- there was this time... I think in in October, when the Americans were racing up the peninsula and and looked like defeating the whole North Korean army before the Chinese get involved. And uh, George Blake actually uh, risked his life to escape from the camp to to go and find the Americans and and ask for safe passage. Uh, That that seems like a heroic act. What was he thinking when he was doing that? Was he, you know, um, there to help the uh, fellow prisoners? He tried to persuade a couple of others to escape with him. They refused, saying rightly it was too dangerous. So he goes alone. 
And it seems at this point the Americans are going to win quite easily. This is before, just before China gets involved in the war. And so he goes, but is caught by the North Koreans. And this has caused a controversy because some people say, well, the North Koreans said to Blake, in exchange for sparing your life, or the Russians say, you have to spy for the KGB. So the idea is he's coerced into spying for the KGB. Blake argues quite convincingly in his book, and I think it's accurate that this didn't happen that he was caught and the North Koreans simply decided not to kill him, he says, because they didn't want to take the risk of killing a British diplomat. And he says, if I'd really agreed then to spy for the KGB, would they have then put me on the subsequent death march where very easily I could have died? So I don't think there was any coercion applied at that point. They spared his life because they didn't want to kill a British diplomat. It is remarkably lucky. Uh, I mean, I remember reading through some of those moments just today in his uh, his autobiography, um, No Other Choice. First of all, when he's at the, the Seoul police station and somebody downstairs discharges a rifle that goes through a desk and an ink pot and splashes him in ink, and it could just as easily have, you know, been a couple of degrees off and hit Blake or hit anybody in that room, but didn't. Uh, and then he's, of course, very lucky that he wasn't shot dead by the first North Korean soldier who found him when he was on his escape to the Americans. And then he was lucky that upon return to the camp, he wasn't shot by the notorious camp guard known as the Tiger uh, for trying to escape. I mean, he, he did get away with some amazing scrapes, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, the odds probably were that he would have died in North Korea and then none of us would ever have heard of George Blake. Hmm. He lives this life of extreme danger. I mean, this is a man who, age 20, has escaped through occupied Europe to Britain. <laughs> yeah. He's got used to it. Yeah, danger is a way of life for him by this point. Now, was it unusual that the North Koreans decided to capture all the foreign civilians that they found in South Korea and take them to North Korea for internment? I mean, was that not against the rules of law of war at that time? I'm not sure. Certainly the three British diplomats are the first British diplomats ever to be taken captive by communists. So mm. it's it's a unique experience. Right. Well, why do you, do you have any sense of why the North Koreans did take all those civilian prisoners? Did they think there was some value to them or was it just that they didn't know anything better to do with them? Well, the British and I think the French at this point were enemy aliens. So you can understand that the North Koreans didn't want these people running around and potentially uh, undermining or spying on the North Korean invasion. Mm. And then the uh, horrendous circumstances in which they're held and the kind of shooting of many of the American prisoners of war who were too weak to continue, just shot by the roadside and then dumped over a ravine in some cases. Uh, it, it doesn't bear thinking about this is one of the worst moments of the 20th century that, that he has witnessed to. Yeah. Now, they say that you really get to know, know somebody when you're forced to spend a trip away with them. Uh, here we had between 70 and 80 multinational civilians arrested in the summer of 1950, wearing summer clothes, forced to march north through this cold and, and the snow, being shot if they if they uh, are too weak to go on or if they, um, stra you know, if they straggle behind, uh, and then live together for the next three years. Uh, and Blake talks about how they all told each other their own life stories again and again, because eventually they ran out of stuff to tell. Tell us a bit about that time in the camps. How did Blake behave? Was he remembered well by his fellow captives, or did they get a, a sense that he was uh, shifty? I mean, there was some adjustment, I think, for hindsight in a memoir like Philip Deans, who was a journalist who was held with him, where, uh, of course, you want to say that you always thought there was something fishy about Blake. <laughs> but I think he was he was well-liked. He was a very positive chap. Uh, he did a lot of work for the others, like fetching water. Mm. It was a good listener, which is a very important quality. He essentially was with a group in a group of eight men 
diplomats and journalists, French and British, highly educated intellectual men who were bored out of their minds in this farmhouse, quite safe, but really with nothing to do. So they they did tell each other a huge amount. Uh, there was a lot of exchange in many different languages, of course, of which Blake was a master. And he he really was uh, liked and admired. He helped save the life of the elderly British consul Holt, Vivian Holt. Mm. And then, you know, so but they're they're bored and bored until this parcel of books arrives from the Soviet embassy in Pyongyang, which is really a turning point. Right. Uh, now, you mentioned that there were uh, eight uh, French and British people, and that's, I should point out to listeners, that's because the uh, the large group of 80 or so civilians were split into two, uh, where it was the, the diplomats uh, and the journalists were taken off to one camp, and the, the others, who were mainly uh, religious workers and, and business people, were uh, left in another camp. Uh, in 2001, I was lucky enough to meet with the uh, now late Father Philip Crosby, who was an Australian Columban father who was uh, had previously been captured by the Japanese after Pearl Harbor uh, and had had the misfortune of being captured a second time uh, in Korea and held as a prisoner of war, but this time by the North Koreans uh, in a different war. Uh, and he said in 2001 that nobody had any idea that uh, George Blank had converted to communism because he, he suffered under the same hardships and priva- privations as all the others and he was uh, a good campmate. I think that's the way it was regarded, and many of the clergymen uh, liked Blake, and he likes them because he had grown up very much in the church and with the Bible, so he found them very congenial company. Now, tell us a bit more about uh, George's uh, Blake's relationship with his boss, Vivian Holt, the United Kingdom's envoy extraordinary and minister plenipotentiary to the Republic of Korea. How, how did they uh, get on together? They came from quite different backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, Holt had been a kind of um, servant of the British Empire. He'd uh, been in Iraq and in India, and he and Blake got on very well, despite the difference in age and despite the fact that Holt was genuinely conservative Britain. And Holt believed that what they were seeing was the end of an era. The British Empire was coming to an end. Of course, with hindsight, he was right about that. And Holt thought that the future would be communist, that to his regret, uh, communism was modernity and was going to win. And so they would have these conversations. And this was convincing to Blake to be told this by an older man, a member of the British establishment who he very much respected. And then the, the kind of coup de grace is that these books arrive from the Soviet embassy in Pyongyang for the prisoners. Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island, which they draw lots for the privilege of reading first, and then they read to pieces. And two books in Russian, uh, Marx's Kapital, translated into Russian, and Lenin's State of, and Revolution. And the only Russian speakers in the group are Holt, who has learned it somewhere in his career, and Blake. And so they sit on a grave mound and they read these books. They read Das Kapital twice in Russian. Not many people have done that, I think. No, and, I've never read it in English. Um, no, not many people, I think, of our generation have read it at all. But of course, if you know, communists of a certain age, but still, to read it twice. I saw a, a speech Blake gives to the Stasi in the 1970s in East Germany where he says he's read it twice. Mm. And there are nervous chuckles from the room because clearly none of these Stasi officers has done that. And anyway, so they read uh, Marx and Blake is persuaded. You know, he's he's a very intelligent man. He's an autodidact. He has only had one year of university at Cambridge learning Russian. And right. so he's kind of hungry for learning, but doesn't have much of a, a context for it. And so this this is the moment in which he, he finds the ideology that he will hold fast to for the rest of his life, is it? It appears so. Uh, Marx becomes a kind of new Bible for him, you know, new theological text for a man who'd grown up with theology. And one night he passes to the North Korean camp commander, a note in Russian for the Soviet embassy 
which says, essentially, I want to go over to your side. And then a KGB agent is dispatched to Manpo. Yeah, and I read that part again in the book, and I remember thinking that could have gone wrong so many different ways too, right? I mean, he's uh, he describes how, I think it's nighttime, he goes off to the latrines, and on the way back, he knocks on the door of the, of the North Korean guards and hands this note in Russian to the North Koreans. Now, it could have gone wrong there because the, the North Koreans, who may not have known Russian, I mean, it's all likely that you know, probably most of them didn't know yeah. Russian, couldn't have read it, uh, may have come back to him the next day and said, what, what's this note you've given us last night? We don't understand what that's about. You know, it could have gone wrong so many different ways. And instead, he sits there for six weeks wondering, um, you know, what's happened? Because, you know, nothing happens for six weeks. And then suddenly um, the Russians turn up and he's taken off, you know, for a one-on-one private meeting in which he's recruited. Yeah, I mean, he does have very rudimentary Korean, so he could probably convey, and he put his fingers to his lips when passing on the note, so he conveyed the need for secrecy. But yes, I mean, he he feels, look, I can die at any moment here. The thing I really want to do is serve the communist cause. Given my skills as a spy, this, this has to be through the KGB. Look, I mean, if you're going to be a double agent in the middle of the Cold War, you're, you're a risk taker. You're, you know, you're not a... A paper shuffler behind some desk. You're right. you're a man who is really willing to do whatever. Now he puts some conditions to the Soviets. Says, "Look, I want to help you guys, but you know it's got to be under these conditions." What are the conditions he puts to the, uh, puts to them? Well, it's very important to him that he is an idealist and that he's not doing this for money or other grubby reasons. He, he sees himself as a kind of spiritual figure, mm. making a spiritual choice. So he says, "You know, you won't pay me." And I will give the information on my own terms, and I won't give information against about uh, other things that Britain is doing, but only things that Britain is doing that relate to the USSR. He sort of wants to be a little bit of a traitor to Britain, but not a complete traitor to Britain. It, it's fascinating. And also he asks for um, no special treatment in the camps, right? So that he's not seen as being special. Yeah, I mean, he partly for moral reasons, I think, but more importantly, if the other prisoners perceive that Blake is being treated better, they will suspect that some kind of deal has been done. So yes, I mean, he still uh, lives this sort of very miserable life of uh, minimal food uh, for well over a year after that. Now, it's been a while since I've read Philip Crosby and Larry Zellers' books on the uh, on their time uh, in their, you know, because they were in a separate camp. I seem to remember that they were also, uh, they met with a Soviet who was sort of sent to their camp to um, give them ideological indoctrination. And that after the war, he apparently defected to the American side. He was known by the nickname of Snowy, if I remember correctly. Do you know anything about this story? Uh, I don't, but uh, it sounds fantastic. And if I were in that snowy's position, I might have done the same. Yeah. Uh, now, why do you think it was that uh, George's conversion to communism made him decide to work for the Soviets instead of staying in Asia and working for the North Koreans uh, or the Chinese, as 21 of the soldier POWs did, right? I'm sure you're aware there's a, a book called 21 Stayed or 23, well, 20-something state, I forget the exact number, uh, mostly Americans and one British Marine who decided to stay behind in China after their, their release. Blake says that, and I think this is true, that he could be of more use to the Russians because he spoke Russian and they were fellow Europeans. So the understanding between him and them was at a much higher level than he had with uh, Chinese or Koreans, North Koreans. So he felt he would have become a burden to the North Koreans had he stayed, whereas for Russia, he could do quite useful work. And he loved Russia. I mean, by this point, he'd spent a year learning the language. He had uh, absorbed it. He loved the Orthodox Church. So he had he had feelings already for the country. He loved the Orthodox Church. 
Yes, he had this British-Russian professor at Cambridge, Elizabeth Hill, Mm. and seeing his gift for languages, within a couple of months he could read Anna Karenina. She would take him to Orthodox services in London, and he was just enchanted by the uh, hymns, by the beauty of it. It, It's fascinating. So we have, I mean, such a complex thing. We have uh, a man who had once dreamt uh, of becoming a Calvinist minister, who had uh, lost religion uh, and found communism, but still loved the Orthodox Church, and um, and the Dutch royal family, you know, yeah, there's, there's so many to the end of his pieces life. to that pie. Blake was a complex man. That's why writing his biography was uh, never dull. Yeah. Yes. Now, after the Korean War, uh, George eventually found himself posted to Berlin, and that was where he really scored some victories for the Soviets, exposing a wiretapping operation in a tunnel under East Berlin and also handing over the names of Western agents. How many uh, British and other Western agents died in East Berlin or the Soviet Union because George Blake handed over information about them to the KGB? Well, when Blake was exposed as a traitor in 1961, SIS, the Secret Intelligence Service, did a lot of phone calling, communicating with its bureaus in Eastern Europe. And it reckons that about 40 of the agents whom Blake betrayed are thought to have been executed. Blake betrayed several hundred agents. He says he's lost count how many mm. there were, but about 40 of them were killed. I mean, remember, this is after the death of Stalin. So communism has become less bloodthirsty, less brutal. And so most of these people are given prison sentences. I found one man in East Germany who served 16 years in jail because wow. of Blake. Were any of these British? Killed. I think that a couple were British. Uh, for example, in uh, Cairo, there were a couple of British spies. One was called Zab. In other words, a businessman. But mostly uh, these are people working behind the Iron Curtain against their own countries, as it were. So they are Russians or East Germans or uh, people from the Balkans working for Britain. The uh, the, the one who was betrayed in Cairo, I remember you just mentioned earlier that uh, George's condition was he would only spy for the KGB or for the Soviets uh, on matters related to the Soviet Union. Uh, and in his book, he says uh, the the communist sphere. So, was the uh, the spy who was betrayed in Cairo was he also doing stuff related to the Soviet Union, or was that sort of outside uh, George's wheelhouse? But he betrayed him anyway. I mean, I think in the book, obviously, he's keen to show that he wasn't such a bad traitor. Hmm. But Egypt in the fifties was a um, a focus of the Cold War mm. with the Suez Canal, with the uh, British attempts to undermine NASA, who is backed by uh, Eastern Europe, by the oh. Communist bloc. So I think he probably felt that counted. Now, did George know about the deaths of the 40 or so agents who were killed? And did he recognize his own role in that? No, he lived in denial. I mean, he said that he told the KGB you can protect the Soviet Union, but you mustn't hurt any of the agents I betray. And he probably did say that to the KGB. Mm -hmm. But of course, the KGB completely ignored that. And Blake, because he was at heart a peace-loving man who Mm. really genuinely didn't like violence, and he never personally uh, committed violence, he could live with himself only by living in denial, by pretending that these people hadn't been hurt in any way, that it was just fake news, as it were, when Mm. uh, newspapers wrote that. And so when I spoke to him and talked to him about regrets, he would allude to these agents only in the vaguest way, Mm. because I think it was just the reality was too painful for him. Was he a pacifist all his life or did he become one? He wasn't a pacifist in the sense that he thought that one shouldn't fight wars. I mean, he himself had fought a war against Hitler. Mm. He um, believed that war was sometimes necessary. He saw himself as a soldier in the Cold War and therefore that... um, if people were hurt or people died, well, that's what happens in wars. So he believed we're in just wars, but he was not a 
sadist. He was not a lover of violence. So the fact that he sent 40 or so people to their deaths was something that he had to reconcile himself with psychologically. And he did it also partly as a Calvinist, you know, his belief that everything is pre predestined. God determines everything. We are just instruments in God's hands, and therefore mm -hmm. there's no real point in regressing or feeling bad about anything. Did he, uh, I mean, you, you allude to the fact that he held on to that belief in, in predestination even after losing his faith in God. So did he swap God for something else? Like, you know, we're all just instruments in uh, the, the, the movement of history's hands or, uh, you know, an unnamed great architect's hands or, or, or fate's hands or something like that? Yes. I mean, communism, in a sense, uh, is quite close to Calvinism in that communism is also a religion of predestination. Mm. In history, it's predestined. We know the final goal, etc. And so our actions can only hasten the arrival of that goal. So he found that very congenial as a lapsed Calvinist. Now, I believe it was written in the book Spymaster by former KGB General Oleg Kalugin that Blake felt more pangs of conscience over revealing the spies that he betrayed than Kim Philby did because of Blake's religious nature. Did you find, do you think that accords with what he told you in your interview with him? I think Philby was more of a cynic and somebody who loved wielding power over lives. I think Blake also loved wielding power over lives. So that's part of the attraction of people to go into the intelligence services, that you're the secret power behind the screens. Mm. But he he was not a callous man in the way that Philby was. And I mean, this is part of Blake's tragedy. He did terrible things, but he wasn't a terrible person. And that's something I've tried to reconcile in the book. Blake's ex-wife also uh, suggested that, uh, that Blake liked having power, didn't she? Yeah. And when she was told in 1961, um, uh, we have some bad news, your husband is a KGB agent. She said she immediately believed it. She didn't mm. for a second think, uh, oh, you've got the wrong man. This is a mistake. She said, oh, everything suddenly makes sense. Ah. Now, you titled your book The Happy Traitor. Um, was he happy in the end? He said so to me. I mean, at the end of our conversation, after a few hours at his dacha, he said to me, so what do you think, you know, now that you've heard my story? And I said, well, I'm rather surprised because I'd expected to find a, a tragic person. And he burst out laughing and he said, no, 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 I'm not tragic at all. And I mm. said, yeah, you're an amiable bloke. And he said, yeah, I'm a happy man. He said, maybe people will say I don't deserve to be, but I, I've, I've been a happy and lucky man. As you know, in Dutch, the word gelukkig, which he mm. used, means both happy and lucky. Right. And that was his self-description. Now, he said several times in his life that in order to be a traitor, one had to belong and he never belonged. Do you feel that he really felt that way or was he trying to rationalize things post facto? I think that he belonged in the Netherlands as a child, but that once he left and never went back, mm. he became a kind of floating cosmopolitan. And he, I mean, there's an idea in Britain that he hated Britain, that he was punishing Britain for its class snobbery towards him, for excluding him as a foreigner. Mm. He didn't hate Britain at all. He was, he was quite fond of Britain. But it's certainly true to say he never belonged there. I mean, the longest stint he spent in Britain was five years in Wormwood Scrubs prison. Mm. And of course, in, in Russia, I mean, he spoke British with a, he spoke English with a Dutch accent. He spoke Russian with a Dutch accent. He, he was you know, a tribe to which I also belong. He was a cosmopolitan. He did hate the class system, though, didn't he? He writes that in his memoir. Yeah, and the class system treated him badly. I mean, it's interesting that of the KG, British KGB agents, Philby was allowed to go to Beirut and work as a newspaper correspondent until he finally fled to the Soviet Union. Cancross, uh, John Cancross, confessed twice 
uh, was never punished and was allowed to come and die in Britain when he was an old man. Mm. Anthony Blunt remained keeper of the Queen's paintings, even though even after it was well known internally that he was a KGB agent. So Blake says, yes, so why was I made an example of? It was because I was a foreigner. I mean, it's not only that he did make a full confession and to the police as well, which is mm. foolish. But yes, I think that it was easier for them to punish an outsider. Yes, yeah, so he's he's recalled from uh, from Lebanon uh, after his cover is blown. Um, he confesses, he's found guilty, and is sentenced to forty two years. Uh, allegedly, one for every one of the agents that he he betrayed to their deaths, and is sent to Wormwood Scrubs. He gets help at, to to break out of Wormwood Scrubs by uh, an Irishman and and a couple of. Uh, what anti-nuclear protesters who were also in prison with him, uh, and is then smuggled to the Soviet Union. And when he when he arrived in the Soviet Union, where he spent more than the next half century, which is surely longer than he thought he was going to live, given the danger he lived in the you know the last uh, the first forty four years of his life, did he feel that he had at last come to the workers' paradise, or was he disillusioned? He was almost immediately disillusioned by the Soviet Union, and this happened to I think all the British traitors who ended up there. Guy Burgess said uh, the Soviet Union was like Glasgow on a Saturday night in the mm. 19th century, which I think is the best description I've heard. Boy. And so, you know, Blake is given this warm flat uh, in the center of Moscow, but, you know, nothing works. Everything is ramshackle. Uh, he realizes quite soon that Russians have no belief in the system. It's completely cynical. And so he's given up his family, his wife and his three sons in Britain, and his life for an illusion. And now he is there and he can never go back home. But because he's a positive person and because he speaks good Russian, he's a cosmopolitan, he resolves to make the best of it. And he does. He builds up a happy new life in Russia, whereas Philby, who remained mm. a British gentleman at heart, uh, was unable to. Tell us a bit more about George Blake's relationship with, with Kim Philby, because I, I read that they had a, a falling out, but I, didn't, I don't remember the details of it. Well, they were both obviously very secretive men and they get to know each other and they get on reasonably well. But Philby's a bit contemptuous of Blake because Blake is um, was a less senior figure in MI6, ah. a foreigner. And a class thing as well, I suppose, not a graduate yeah, of, I mean, uh, Philby, of Oxbridge. Yeah, Philby's sort of contemptuous of almost everyone. And Blake is contemptuous of Philby because Blake has learned good Russian, has adapted, has found hmm. a Russian wife and happiness. And Philby, you know, still reads the, the cricket reports in the Times every day. <laughs> and they get on rather warily. I mean, uh, Blake's mother is there often, and she and Philby become quite matey and drink uh, martinis in the evening. Hmm. But uh, and then in 1975-6, Philby's son, who's a photographer, takes some photographs of a day at the Dacha, the Dacha that I visited, hmm. and um, then sells them to the Observer in Britain. They're published. And Blake and his wife are outraged because this is very uh, upsetting to Blake's ex-wife and sons in Britain, see their father, the traitor, being paraded in, in the newspapers. Right. And they tried to persuade the Philbys not to publish the papers, but uh, Philby completely refuses to listen. So they don't speak after that. But Blake does go to his funeral in 1988 to pay his respects. Where was the funeral? Philby was buried in Moscow. Couldn't really, couldn't really go anywhere else. I mean, that, that was the tragedy of these very international you know, travelers they're then stuck in this uh, dingy Soviet capital for the rest of their lives. Yes. Now, also in Spymaster, Kalugan wrote that the KGB poisoned Irishman Sean Burke with a drug that would mimic the effects of a stroke because they were afraid that Burke would reveal Blake's whereabouts uh, and leading to a possible attempt on his life. Do you believe this story is likely true? Was Burke poisoned by the KGB? 
I don't think so. I mean, I think it's possible that the KGB considered this, but Burke, you know, he wrote his magnum opus about having sprung Blake from jail. Burke was a real artist and it's a very good book. And Hitchcock, in fact, bought the rights to it. Ah. But then Burke spent the last 15 years or so of his life just drinking. You know, he he got a lot of money for selling the rights to his book. Hmm. And he sort of bought pints for everyone in Limerick every day. And he dies age 48 of a heart attack in a caravan, having drunk himself to death, I think, without much help from the KGB on that. Did he have, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Kalugan uh, points to both uh, the effects of the drug and the alcohol. Uh, did Burke have IRA connections? I don't think so. I mean, he he may have been very sympathetic to the IRA because he um, he detested the British Empire. He uh, detested the British establishment as well. But he, I think he was too much of a, a loose cannon to associate himself with any uh, organisation. He was just very much his own man. Now, KGB agents who defect to the West often have good reason to fear for their longevity, uh, but Blake lived to almost 100. Was Blake ever in danger of reprisals by the British or other Western countries? Did he have bodyguards or security while living in Russia? I think the first couple of years, the Russians were afraid that the Brits would try and bump him off. Uh, I don't think that was British practice generally with uh, defectors. And I don't think they wanted to cause an international incident over that. So pretty soon he comes to live this very uh, peaceable life. Mm. His moment of great worry is in 1990, when uh, the Soviet Union, 91, the Soviet Union collapses. And there's talk that Russia will extradite him to Britain mm. to serve out the rest of his sentence. There's talk that he can go to North Korea as a safe haven and uh, live out the rest of his life in North Korea. But he said he'd rather go back to Wormwood Scrubs, the jail he was in in Britain, than go to North Korea. Yeah. And in the end, it all blows over. The Russians don't extradite him. But is there? did you find evidence that the Russians actually were seriously considering that? There was a very brief phase when the uh, Russian uh, files were open, the Soviet files were open in those couple of years, and then they quickly close again. And when Russian officials speak quite freely to Western media, and it does appear that this was being considered, the Russians asked for 20, I think, Russians held in Britain to be extradited in return for Blake. Hmm. And so the Brits don't go for that. Is there evidence that the British government was interested in having Blake back? Yes, um, they would very much have liked to. At one point in the 90s, Blake um, considers visiting his mother, who's in an old age home in Rotterdam mm. in the Netherlands. And a friend discreetly checks with the Dutch authorities, you know, Blake might make this secret run to Holland to visit his mother. Is that okay? Yeah. And the Dutch say, well, if the British request his extradition, which they will, is if they find out he's in Holland, we'll have no choice but to give him up. So yes, I mean, the, the Brits would have loved to have had him back because it was a huge embarrassment, his escape from jail. And this would have been some source of atonement for that. Now, in 1990, the year before the Soviet collapse, uh, George wrote and published his own memoir or autobiography uh, titled No Other Choice. Again, it, it's a, a reference to, to Blake's belief in predestination, that he only did that which was was laid out in the, the plan of the universe for him and that he, he had no other choice. D does he tell a consistent story about his life and motivations? Uh, I mean, do you believe him? Is he a reliable narrator? I believe him. I mean, there were times when he wasn't free to speak in his life. Uh, so when he's a double a, a KGB double agent working for the British, or even before when he's a spy working for the British pretending to be a diplomat, then when he's in the Soviet Union, um, you know, the mighty KGB, obviously he uh, he has very little freedom to speak. But by the in the 90s, when the whole system has collapsed and he publishes his book, he can to a large degree say what he wants. 
that all his life, his story of his motivations remains pretty consistent. You know, this kind of idealistic choice for communism, which he doesn't really regret. I think that the autobiography is quite an honest document. Blake was secretive, but he wasn't a fantasist or liar. When he could speak, he seems to have spoken quite openly. Except in in Roger Hermiston's book, uh, The Greatest Traitor, um, or actually I might be getting my thing mixed up, I watched a a documentary that I found on YouTube um, in which Hermiston was interviewed. There's a suggestion that, uh, that Blake did have a little bit of a fantasist element about him when he, during World War II, he told his secretary at the uh, Secret Intelligence Service that he'd been airdropped into the Netherlands, which in fact wasn't true, apparently. Yeah, although she, the the woman he told it to may have been having a false memory. But Ah. I mean, he was a, uh, of course, a lot of people had dealings with Blake when he was considered to be a British agent. And they forgot he was a forgettable figure. He was polite. uh, He didn't give much away. So they forgot it. And then after he turns out to be a traitor, they all go on the record saying, well, I always knew there was something odd about him. And uh, I remember this time happened when. And so I don't think those memories are altogether reliable. But Mm. on the other hand, you know, he was a young man who was working in the secret services, who was having this very exciting life. So it it would have been not, let's say, humanly atypical for him to kind of boast to a woman about uh, what a daring fellow he was. It's a fair point. Yeah. Uh, Now, you went to meet him for a number of hours in Moscow. Was that in 2012? Did I get that right? Yes, in May 2012. And that was to, uh, with a view to writing an article that ultimately became the basis for this new book. Uh, what does your book add to, um, to the already existing literature, including George Blake's own autobiography? You have to understand Blake as an international person. So I, I've spent much more time with Blake than anyone who's written a book about him previously. And I've used international sources, um, lots of um, Dutch articles about his childhood, uh, interviews with his mother, and most importantly for me, the Stasi archive, which, I mean, the Stasi archive is really unique because here is the archive of the spy service of a country that disappeared, the GDR went defunct. And so all its files are available. And, you know, they have very helpful, uh, efficient archivists who uh, procured everything to do with Blake for me. He gave many speeches to the Stasi as a kind of visiting celebrity in the 70s and in 1980. And uh, so I watched those speeches on video. That is a very rich source because, of course, the thing about writing about intelligence is so much has remained secret. MI6 has never released its file on Blake. It's so embarrassing. We know so little, and you have to be aware when writing about it how little you know. But once you start, and a friend of mine helped me with Russian sources on Blake, once you start approaching Blake as an international figure, then he starts to make much more sense and also much more material comes out of the woodwork. This uh, thing about this, giving lectures to the Stasi in the 1970s is quite fascinating because he's already what he's been out of uh, out of jail for between five and ten years. What were the uh, the Stasi hoping to learn from him at that time? I mean, he's a he's a celebrity in the Eastern European spying world, and he speaks good German. And he'd helped out um, the Stasi when he was still active. He'd helped out Erich Milke, who was the field feared head of the Stasi who uh, became one of his big supporters. So he was kind of invited. These are really sort of freebies on, um, you know, it's an easy visit. You're treated as a bit of a hero. You get to see another country. I don't think there was much 
as it were, learning done, although supposedly he, he can pass on uh, spycraft tricks and tell them a bit about what the British are doing. But he actually never particularly wanted to um, hurt the British Secret Service even more than he already had. Mm. So he tries not to um, give away too much of their um, methodology, I think, more than he can help. And the East Germans, of course, are a junior service to the Soviets, so they can be treated with a degree of contact. Was there anything surprising that you were able to learn about Blake after you had met him and, and spent hours with him? It's hard for me to disentangle because when I met him, I'd read his book and I'd read a few articles, but I didn't really know that much. And I walked out spent, after spending three or four hours with him thinking, well, that's the most interesting interview I've ever done in my journalistic career. I mean, you know, the man I've learned to say is a one-man Netflix series and he can reflect on this and work as well. He's a very thoughtful, intelligent person. And so I wrote the article for a Dutch newspaper and I thought that there is more here. So a couple of years later, I began to research everything I could possibly find. I spent years reading about Blake. So it's hard for me to know what I knew when. Yeah, you just said something that I was thinking, that he's a one-man Netflix series. Has, has his life story or part of it ever been immortalized in, in film or on the small screen in any country? The great missed opportunity, I, I, I think there is one Russian TV, kind of fictionalized TV film, but the great missed opportunity was Hitchcock. Hitchcock loved the story of his escape. And so he buys the rights to Burke's book and another book about Blake. And he spends the last decade of his life in Hollywood trying to turn this into a movie. It's going to be originally, I think, with Sean Connery playing Blake. And the problem is that Hitchcock by this point is going senile. He's generally in decline. And in the end, he just can't do it. So he gives up, resigns at Universal Studios. And a few months later, he dies. If only that film had been written, but the script is done. Hitchcock and a young screenwriter wrote it. So uh, I would hope that one day somebody turns that into a movie. It, it does surprise me that, you know, especially with the interest in uh, uh, the James Bond and other spy films, that nobody's ever gone back and, and bought that script or, or Universal has never dug it up again and said, you know, let's uh, dust it off and make a film or, or a series out of it. I'm hoping that somebody will do that now. Yeah. Do you hope that now that your book has come out that uh, it could be? Has anyone talked to you about immortalizing it uh, on the big big or little screen? Uh, we have had a couple of uh, conversations with uh, filmmakers, but uh, I'm always skeptical of these conversations because for every hundred ideas in film and TV, one actually gets made. True, yeah. Now, do you, um, sort of looking at your uh, overall evaluation of, of Blake, his life, you, you said earlier that it seems to be that he was a, a person with good intentions who did some horrible things. It, would that be a, an accurate summary of his life? I think so. He, I mean, the way I've learned to say it as well, he's a well-meaning man who became a serial killer. So uh, to me, it's a story also about the danger of ideals. Uh, idealists are very dangerous people. I mean, if you think of Graham Greene's The Quiet American about a kind of American agent uh, of that type. Or I often think of the the European jihadis of today. I mean, mm. I, I live in Paris. I cycle past the Bataclan Music Hall every day where the, the massacre took place in 2015 by the jihadis. And I think Blake, as this kind of uh, ruthless idealist, has a lot in common with those people. Um, yeah, when you, you finish up your uh, a recent article in the Financial Times saying that you didn't send him any herring or cheese that he'd asked for. Uh, why was that? Well, I came away very charmed. I think journalists are social people and we're very susceptible to being charmed by the people we meet. And so we, we write too nicely about them. And I might have done that had I written the article that evening. But I got home from Moscow to Paris and I told my wife about this amazing man I'd interviewed. And she said, yeah, but it sounds like he killed 40 people. And I thought, yes, that's right. 
and I sort of pushed that to the back of my mind. As uh, I began to read a bit more about him, I thought, I'm not going to send him the herring. Except he didn't really kill 40 people himself, did he? Well, I mean, this comes, then you come to questions about who is responsible for deaths. I mean, do, do right. Nazis who send people to concentration camps through squiggles on paper, do they kill people? I would say yes. Yeah, that, it, that's, uh, it's a very tricky area of human morality, certainly. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm reminded of uh, that book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, that came out in the 1990s that suggested yeah. that, uh, yeah, that, that even uh, a bureaucrat at a desk who never saw uh, a Jew or a, or a rail car or a concentration camp uh, was also a part of that machine. Yes, and with Blake, it's, it's more direct. I mean, if you are telling the KGB, look, there's this agent of the British working in Moscow, uh, I think you can guess what's going to happen. Uh, a betrayed agent in the middle of the Cold War is not given community service in the Soviet Union. Right. So even when he told the KGB, look, you mustn't kill them or hurt them, that's not a, uh, a mitigating factor? I don't think so. I mean, it's it seems to me such a naive and unrealistic understanding of the way that this spy service works. Look, this is not the 30s when we might, some people still had illusions about the the Soviet regime. This is he starts working for them in 1951 when we know all about the crimes of Stalin. Anyone who cared to know knew, and he said to me, "Well, look, those crimes have been um, had been con- condemned by the communists themselves, by Khrushchev." But he was getting his chronology wrong because he joins uh, the KGB in 1951, and Khrushchev only condemns the crimes in 1956. So Blake in 1951 was choosing the side of mass murder. It's yeah, absolutely. I think you you've got that right. Uh, it's a it's a wonderful uh, it's an amazing story and I look forward to reading the book. Uh, my aunt has bought it and will be sending it over to me shortly. Uh, I want to thank you today, Simon Cooper, for joining us on the NK News podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure, ladies and gentlemen. If you already have an NK News account and you're a think tank, business, or academic institution, take a look at NK Pro. Our NK Pro platform offers unparalleled services, specifically catered to the needs of professionals who monitor developments on the Korean Peninsula on a daily basis. Inquire about access at membership at nknews.org today. Oh, and just a reminder for our listeners: the title of the book by today's guest, Simon Cooper, is "The Happy Traitor." Spies, Lies and Exile in Russia, The Extraordinary Story of George Blake, and you should be able to find that at all good bookshops and online. Our thanks, as always, to James Fretwell and Chad O'Carroll for facilitating this podcast, and to Arius Dare, our post-recording producer genius, who cuts out all the extraneous noises, awkward silences, bodily functions, etc. Thanks for listening, and check us again next time. Mm-hmm.